0: Hello and welcome to the Oxford Cybar Podcast for August, brought to you by the Oxfordshire Branch of the British Science Association. We were lucky enough this month to be joined by Dr. Jim Baggett, who spoke to us about his book, The Quantum Story, A History in 40 Moments. And so without any further ado, I'll hand you over to Amanda to introduce him properly. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's a great pleasure tonight to introduce to you Jim Baggett. Probably a lot of you already know about Jim Baggett. He's a a very highly acclaimed science writer and has written numerous books including uh, Perfect Symmetry, An Atomic, A Secret History of the Atom Bomb and tonight he's going to talk to us about his newest book which is The Quantum Story, A History in 40 Moments and it's sort of a backstage look I think at a lot of the characters and the rivalries that were involved in the creation of the quantum theory as we know it today and I'll let you Okay. take That's over great. from
1: there and thanks very much. Can anyone hear me?
0: Yeah.
1: Good evening. This is a bit rock and roll this isn't it? In the middle of a pub with a crowded room I feel like I should stand up and give a rendition of maybe an Eagles song or Rolling Stones or something. No perhaps not. You haven't heard me sing and you don't want to. Well welcome everyone. Thanks for coming along this evening. I um, I'm very conscious, as Amanda was making the introductions, that I have no prepared script here for you this evening. Uh, We don't do PowerPoint, thank goodness. Um, We don't do any kind of audio-visual, thank goodness. So it's just me and a little microphone and you guys. And I want to be absolutely clear that what I would really love, what would make the evening for me is if you guys are very vocal this evening and interrupt me and ask me lots of questions. If you've had a chance to look at the book and you've had some thoughts as to, well, where did he get that from? That can't be right. No, I disagree with that. Please, any strong opinions, we'd love to hear them. What I will do is I'll get this evening kick-started with a little bit of an overview as to how who I am and how I came to write this book, um, which might give you some insights into how it's come to be structured this way and how it comes to say the kinds of things that it does say. I'd also like to take this opportunity to do some marketing for uh, the book that's coming next and possibly even the book that's coming after that because the world turns and time waits for no man and one publishes a book and one immediately has to start thinking about what one is going to do next and that's exactly what I've done. All right, now i will sure you will have lots of questions for me. And I'm sure you're going to keep me on my toes this evening. I really hope that. Okay, And don't hold back. So let me tell you something about me. Um, well, I grew up in the cheerless West Midlands. In, born in 1957. So you can do the maths. You can work out how old I am. A 60s child. Well, no, I kind of missed the 60s. I was a bit too young. They do say, as I'm sure... You've been told that if you can remember the 60s, then you didn't participate in it. And I can certainly remember my childhood growing up in the 60s. In the 70s, I got the opportunity to escape from my West Midlands upbringing and environment and go to university. And I went to university in Manchester. And it rained. (laughs) I arrived in September and the first thing I had to do after having moved moved into my uh, University Hall of Residence was to go buy an umbrella because the short walk between my Hall of Residence and the lecture theatres where I was starting to receive some of my first lectures in chemistry um, was short but long enough to get totally soaked if you didn't have any kind of protection. And one of the things that I encountered in that first term as an undergraduate student in Manchester was quantum mechanics. And you know, I, I don't know if I can paint a subtle enough picture for you here, but if you can imagine some pretty stupid and ignorant kid from the West Midlands sitting in a grand lecture theatre at the University of Manchester, Institute of Science and Technology, hearing for the first time About this thing called quantum mechanics and I have to tell you I was completely and utterly blown away this was just from Mars this was just something that I had never but never imagined was even possible as a viable theory describing the world that we live in and I fell in love with quantum mechanics i mean can you fall in love with a physical theory i don't i don't know but i guess i guess i did i fell in love with quantum theory although i didn't really understand it then because as a an 18 year old exploring the wonders of a first degree you tend not to be wholly devoted to your studies and i did lots of other things as well this went on i went on i did my dphil here in oxford so whatever they did to me in manchester was good enough to get me here to study for a degree, uh, a Doctor of Philosophy in uh, in the Physical Chemistry Laboratory in South Parks Road. I spent three years and a fourth year as a postdoc before going off to Stanford University for a year and then popping back as a lecturer in chemistry at the University of Reading. And I've got stuck in Reading ever since. Now, I gave up being an academic scientist many, many years ago. I won't tell you what I do now. It's way too boring and you won't be interested. But one of the commitments I made to myself when I left academic science was that I would find a way to make sure that I keep science in my life in some way, shape or form. And I had a wonderful encounter with a features editor of New Scientist who said, Jim, you're interested in writing popular science. Why don't you send me an article? I sent her an article. It came back to me. The fact that it came back to me in itself was a fantastic breakthrough, believe it or not, but it was covered in editorial red ink. I didn't give up, I pursued that article and it was eventually published in New Science. It was actually about the ability that chemists had achieved at that time to probe bond dissociation dynamics using femtosecond laser techniques. So I did that and that got me started on a track towards becoming a writer. I am not a full-time writer. Writing is a hobby. I, in my spare time, like to write about physics. How sad is that? Okay, so that's the background. So that's how I come to being Writing about this subject and how I became enamored of, of quantum theory as a subject and then many years ago I, I had this this great idea. i would written a couple of books they had been reasonably well received although the target audiences for these books as primarily undergraduate scientists it has to be said and I had this idea that I'd write a popular account of the history of quantum physics Based on the biographies of the scientists who made it wasn't that a good concept I called it quantum a biography. This was in the days when it was de rigueur to write biographies of inanimate subjects. It's no longer de rigueur. I submitted this proposal to a number of publishers. I had an origin for this story, 1900, Max Planck, all the way through to relatively contemporary modern physics with a huge chunk in the middle about the development of the first atomic weapons because, of course, the physicists who were involved in the early development of quantum mechanics were the same physicists that were involved in the development of atomic weapons. And that's a juxtaposition that has always fascinated me. Needless to say, this was rejected as being a little bit too ambitious. The middle section eventually became a book in itself. It's called Atomic. The First War of Physics and the Secret History of the Atom Bomb. That was published a couple of years ago. And when I came back to Oxford University Press with the idea of, well, how about a book on what's left? I suggested that what I might do is to summarise the historical development of quantum mechanics from 1900 to the present day in a sequence of 40 turning points, 40 moments in that history, most of which suggested themselves as naturally obvious choices, but some of which were inevitably contrived in order to be able to maintain some kind of narrative consistency and flow. And that's the book that was published just last February. So beginning with Max Planck in 1900, all the way through to, well, actually, I stopped writing just as the Large Hadron Collider was beginning to crank up to collision energies of seven tera-electron volts. And those of you who are watching events closely will know that Possibly. The discovery of a Higgs boson of some description is possibly just around the corner a matter of weeks, if not months. Okay? So, there's an interesting mission. So how have I done it? How have I structured this book? The early days in the history of quantum mechanics are about the establishment and the coming to terms with the tremendous change in perspective that's required between the ideas of classical mechanics, almost Newtonian clockwork idea of how a universe works, to aspects of quantum uncertainty and change. And there's several steps involved in the reconciliation of that quantum behavior and its absorption into the mainstream of physics. So from about 1900 to the early 1920s, there's a sequence of episodes. Planck's discovery, Bohr's theory of the atom, Einstein's light quantum hypothesis. These were natural obvious choices for events that led up to the beginnings of a formal quantum mechanics in the 1920s. Then there's the development of that formal quantum mechanics in the 1920s, which I've structured in the form of challenges to interpretation. So mad was this theory that it led to profound arguments and debates between some of the leading physicists of the day as to just precisely what this was supposed to mean. That debate culminated in the third section of the book in the classic debate between Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein on the interpretation of quantum mechanics. Does God play dice? All that kind of good stuff. Now, popular books on quantum mechanics, and I've uh, read many, as you can imagine, tend to focus on this kind of debate, this kind of challenge to our thinking. We're used to the idea that if I take this book and I let go, (coughs) it'll be pulled down by the force of gravity and drop immediately. We all understand how that works. The fact that space-time is curved in the region where I let go, and it's following the curvature of space-time on the way to the floor is a subtle point that won't delay us. Gravity pulls it down. Quantum mechanics changes that view entirely. It says that if I, for example, excite an electron in an atom to a higher atomic orbital, pump energy in, then there are forces that the electron is exposed to that will drag it back down to a more stable atomic configuration in the lower energy state. Excellent, we all understand that, but it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like letting go of the book and waiting for the force of gravity to pull it down. There's no telling when that electron will emit a photon and fall to a lower energy state. The moment in time when that happens is left, it seems, entirely to chance. All we can predict is a probability that it will happen within a certain time frame. Now suddenly the classical perspective, put energy in, pump something up, wait for it to fall back, has gone. Now we're left with this concept of quantum probability. Quantum probability is not like ordinary probability. If I could get hold of a coin and toss that coin in the air and look for heads and tails we know what the answer is there's a 50-50 chance I'll get heads and there's a 50-50 chance I'll get tails what's to stop me predicting precisely what result I will get when I toss the coin I'm just ignorant of all the parameters that are at play You know, the force with which I toss the coin the number of times it spins in the air the air currents in the room all of those things if I could understand them and model them Perhaps there's a chance I could predict, you know, that coin's going to come down heads. That coin's going to come down tails. Quantum mechanics, probability doesn't work that way. Probability arises in quantum mechanics not because we're ignorant of all the things that are going on inside the atom or with a quantum particle. Now this got Albert Einstein pretty worked up. God does not play dice is one of his more famous sayings, but there were many others that he came out with during that time in the 1920s and early 1930s, where he he really took quantum mechanics to task. In the meantime, an interpretation of quantum mechanics had been developed by Niels Bohr and his colleagues in Copenhagen that became known as the Copenhagen Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics. And it basically said, forget it, we don't know because we'll never know what's going on at this level. We are beyond the limit of our ability to understand the mechanics of matter at this level. Einstein didn't like that. They had a good running debate over many years, culminating in something that's known as the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the details of this experiment, but it is fascinating. Trust me. Trust me. Effectively, it says, okay, so you said, Bohr, that quantum probability results from the fact that I simply cannot, honestly, interfere with a quantum particle, an electron in an atom, for example, without changing it in a substantial way. Bohr didn't start off in that position, but as Einstein challenged him, he gradually, his defences moved in that direction. Bohr's responses to Einstein challenges shifted so that effectively what Bohr was arguing was clumsiness of interaction. And it's often, if you've been taught science and you've had a teacher who's not particularly familiar with the real interpretation of the uncertainty principle, chances are you may have been told that quantum uncertainty arises because we're just too clumsy. We cannot interact with a particle without nudging it in a very significant way. Sorry. (laughs) Wrong. Quite wrong. Quite wrong. What Einstein was able to do is to set up a hypothetical experiment as it was then, which said, okay, imagine a situation where we have a a quantum system in which there are two particles that have interacted and they move apart. Could be two electrons, could be two atom fragments, could be two photons. But as a consequence of certain conservation laws, like the conservation of angular momentum, we know that both of the particles have to meet certain constraints. For example, if it's two electrons, we know, because of the mechanics of the atom, that one of those electrons might have to have a spin-up orientation, which means that the other one has to have a spin-down orientation. Now, Bohr's challenge was quantum uncertainty arises, quantum probability arises because of clumsiness. Okay, so let's forget clumsiness. Let's imagine we can probe the properties of this electron and we find that it's spin-up hey, without interfering with this particle over here, we have deduced, by definition, that it must be spinned out. We haven't interfered with it at all. There's no clumsiness involved there. The issue that Einstein was making was that if we do that, in effect, we can measure quantities of these quantum particles that quantum theory did not allow us to measure. It's a great challenge, utterly dismissed at the time by Bohr as being a phantom. And by that time, there were other arguments that said, in fact, the kinds of things that Einstein was nagging after, chasing after, were really not possible anyway. They were mathematically not possible. And there, the matter rested. 1935, it stopped. And I haven't even mentioned the famous paradox of Schrodinger's cat. We can talk about that later if you really want to. Fast forward to the late 1950s, early 1960s. David Bohm, an American physicist and communist, Arrested by the and charged by the House and American Activities Committee for Communist Activities. Having written a wonderful book called Quantum Theory, which was based on the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, he suddenly starts to have doubts. Get guess guess why? Because he'd had conversations with Einstein. And before too long, the whole argument saying that this kind of correlation was impossible, that kind of fix that Einstein was nagging after was impossible, had unraveled. And in the early 1960s, a CERN physicist called John Bell deduced a famous um, hypothesis and theorem and an inequality which provided the basis of a famous test. So this was going to give us an opportunity to really test fundamental quantum mechanics and find out whether Einstein had been right all along or Bohr had been right all along. Does anybody know what the answer was? Experiments, the earliest of which were in 1982, and there have been loads more experiments since. Anybody like to predict? Sorry? Entanglement. Entanglement is at the heart of the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment, yes. The fact that we've got these two particles moving away from each other, but they're connected somehow by a single wave function. Let's not get into the technical details. They're in contact with each other. The interesting thing is, okay, so if this electron is found to be spin-up, how does the other electron know what spin it's supposed to have? Spooky, which is what (laughs) Einstein called it. Spooky action at a distance. (laughs) It's right. Absolutely right. It gets worse. Because experiments performed as recently as 2006 suggest unequivocally... Let me back up. Classical modern philosophers like Descartes and Berkeley and Hume and others got into a wonderful tangle which ultimately was summarised in the philosophical work of Immanuel Kant ...as being arguments around our inability to understand, ultimately, things in themselves. We could only ever study things as they appear. Heisenberg once famously said, Don't forget, in physics we do not reveal nature in itself. We only reveal nature exposed to our method of questioning. These experiments in 2006 pointed unequivocally to a simple fact, that if I take two photons that have interacted at some time in their past history and I measure their properties, they are connected, they are entangled, but in such a way that I now have to say that my whole idea of assigning properties to these particles before the act of measurement is wrong. The particles in principle have no properties until they're measured. When I make a measurement on one particle over here, the properties of the other particle over there, which could be, by the way, halfway across the universe, are fixed instantaneously. Nothing has happened in experimental quantum physics in the last 50 years to satisfy Einstein's challenges. In fact, if anything, everything's got really rather a lot So, we hear that this now is a headlong collision between fundamental experimental quantum physics and philosophy. Anyone who thought studying physics was a way to avoid doing philosophy probably should have another think about that. So, there's a section on quantum entanglement, there's a section on quantum reality in the book. I decided that, having explored the development of quantum physics till the 1930s, I would then divert into uh, an exploration of the history of particle physics. In fact, it's very interesting. A reviewer who just published a review recently, which Kate shared with me just today, um, said, "Well, I'm not entirely sure why he's chosen particle physics and didn't choose something like solid-state physics." But well, I can answer that: particle physics is a heck of a lot more interesting. And. Particle physics takes us to new layers and new levels of quantum theory. It takes us to quantum field theory. It takes us to quantum electrodynamics. It takes us to quantum chromodynamics. It takes us to the electroweak theory and what is known colloquially these days as the standard model of particle physics all underpinned by quantum theory. So the huge middle section of the book is an exploration of experimental quantum physics, particle physics and, and theoretical particle physics through to the, well actually through to the present day, uh, although the story of the Standard Model ends towards the end of the 1970s, early 1980s. I wind the clock back, we spend some time going over the history of tests of quantum reality, revisiting the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen challenge and all the evidence that's come back since saying, irrespective of how we think the world works, think again. And the final section of the book, if you thought there was no more room left, is about quantum cosmology, the, the challenge of putting together two massive pillars of our contemporary understanding of the physical world, quantum mechanics and general relativity. Now, these are two theories that Actually, are rather like grumpy old men. Keep them apart, and things will run smoothly. Put them together, and you'll get a flashpoint, and there'll be an argument of some description. I should know. I am a grumpy old man. Now, producing a quantum theory of gravity um, is, is, is not straightforward to the point of impossible. It is at least so far proved. So the final section of the history of uh, uh, the quantum story, um, is an exploration of the work that was done and the key turning points in the development of a quantum theory of gravity or a quantum cosmology. Okay, so that sums it up. There's lots of stuff that's left out. 40 moments doesn't leave you much scope. Um, Nonetheless, it's a thick book. We've already established it's quite heavy. Makes a bit of a noise when it hits the floor. Um, The feedback I'm getting on the book is that it's entertaining. That's great, because um, that means I've fulfilled at least one ambition I had for the book. It's also challenging. There are bits in it that, that are heavy going, hard work, uh, because the physics is, is tricky. Well, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, and I'd like to be perfectly honest with you, my understanding gets thin, my ability to explain it gets even thinner. So the chances are where it gets difficult is betraying the fact that I don't understand it myself. Okay. I've been on for more than long enough. All right? I hope that summarizes the book for you. Um, questions? Challenges? Yes? So is there any distance at
0: which
1: quantum entanglement wouldn't occur, or is this Could you repeat that? Is there any distance at which quantum quantum entanglement stops or ceases or, or, or doesn't occur? Well, I, I, I actually have to say, I haven't kept up with the, the latest um, So let me answer that by giving you um, at least one example of quantum entanglement in a system that was studied between two Swiss villages in Bellevue and Bernex, 11 kilometers apart, where quantum entanglement was established over that distance. Now I believe, although I'd need to go back and check, that quantum entanglement has actually now been shown to be possible with light that's been bounced off the laser mirror that sits on the moon. So there's, there's no sense in which this is something that dries up at a distance of, of atomic scales or centimetres or metres or kilometres or possibly huge, huge universal distances. We have to believe, because it's what the theory tells us, that quantum entanglement is a phenomenon that quite simply is established over vast distances. Now think about it. And I want again to emphasize what what is going on here. We've got two particles that have interacted and they've moved apart. It's easier to imagine that they move apart in opposite directions. What we're saying is that the theory says that those two particles are described by a single wave function. Don't be detained by what that means. It just means they're connected, they're entangled. Their properties are dependent. There's a co-dependence there that we, if we're honest, don't really understand. And when we make a measurement on one of them, we instantaneously correctly predict the properties of the particle possibly even halfway or all the way across the universe. How is that supposed to work? I'm starting to warm to entanglement. One of my problems uh, with entanglement, particularly when it comes to bigger particulate systems. Entanglement has been demonstrated not just with photons, it's been demonstrated with electrons, it's even been demonstrated, after a fact, with, with large molecules. There is an ambition. Um, um, uh, Anton Zeilinger and his colleagues at the University of Innsbruck in Austria um, have an ambition to demonstrate entanglement with amoeba. I don't know whether they'll really be successful because I think amoeba are a bit too big, but let's see. I have warmed to entanglement, quite simply because I had not really appreciated until I did the studying to write the quantum story how mass works. Are we clear where mass comes from? I, I know where my mass comes from. Yes. Uh, And that's the right answer. Um, uh, The naive view, and I'm naive with a little n, I'm not criticizing anyone here, the naive view is that mass is an intrinsic or primary quality of the constituents of matter. Okay, so if we take a cube of ice that weighs about 18 grams, we know it contains a mole of water. We know how many, or can calculate how many protons and neutrons will be in the water molecules in that cube of ice. We know from the atomic weights of protons and neutrons what that means in terms of the mass. Slight problem, mass... Well, protons and neutrons are made of quarks. And when you look at the masses of quarks, well, they don't add up to the mass of a proton or a neutron. So the mass of the proton and neutron is coming from tiny quarks, but the energy of the gluons that hold those quarks together inside protons and neutrons. Einstein's famous 1905 paper which introduced special relativity by the way and that famous equation that everybody knows whether they're scientists or not that's called E equals MC squared. Einstein never wrote that down in that paper. He wrote M equals E over C squared and what he was saying is is mass simply the inertia that arises from bodies with energy and that appears to be the answer. The standard model of particle physics rests on an assumption, an assumption that there exists throughout the universe a quantum field called the Higgs field. Particles that are inherently massless interact with the Higgs field, not photons, they zip through so they remain massless. But all other particles interact with the Higgs field and they get slowed down. That slowing down appears to us as inertial mass. So mass is not a primary quantity, intrinsic property of stuff. It's a consequence, it's a secondary consequence of massless particles interacting with the Higgs field. That's the theory. We will know, possibly in a few weeks, possibly in a few months, possibly next year, whether the Higgs field actually really exists. That was a long winded answer to your question. Okay. Next. Uh, does all your understanding of this is involved by the fact that we have this thing called dark energy and dark matter? Okay. Dark dark energy and, and dark matter um, are not really touched on in the quantum story. Um, although there's an argument that they possibly should be. Now, just 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 to, to expand on the on the question. Um, Einstein's general theory of relativity has um, uh, many. There are solutions to many different, uh, different solutions to the field equations of general relativity, one of which imply the idea that the universe is expanding. And I won't beat about the bush. We all know the universe is expanding. The cosmic microwave background radiation show that to be the case, and we all understand now how that's meant to work. We know that the universe began in a Big Bang fireball 13.7 billion years ago. That's fact. There's no arguing with that. The problem is that it's been discovered as a result of looking at the motions of galaxies and at aspects of um, modern uh, cosmology that um, those gravitational field equations don't tell the whole story unless you add some things. Dark matter comes about because um, uh, gra- uh, certain galaxies are, are moving in a way that can only be explained by assuming that they're a lot heavier than they appear in terms of the light they emit and therefore the constituents of them in terms of matter that we know about so dark matter is matter that we don't know anything about dark energy comes from a completely different source it's effectively a kind of almost negative gravity and it's responsible for actually pushing the universe the expansion of the universe at a rate that's growing in speed rather than declining in speed now all of these are parameters in the theory that are required to fit observations of the known universe. Um, Slight problem dark matter and dark energy account for 96% of the universe according to that model so everything we are and everything we can see in the night sky and everything beyond that is only 4% of the universe that we live in. Bit of a swindle. we're not getting the full picture. Now yes the origin of dark energy and dark matter, they have some quantum connections, but I had to draw a line as to what I would choose to write about and what I would choose not to about. And the origin of dark matter and dark energy are really growing out of general relativity rather than quantum mechanics. So no, is the short answer it's to your question. Worrying, it's pretty worrying in other words. Where is it? What is it? Who knows? How does it affect us? Not at all. But it's a problem. Those of you who are thinking that we should be close in the 21st century to a complete description of life, the universe and everything, I hate to disillusion you, but we're a very, very long way away from understanding anything, it seems to me. I have a thesis that says that there's absolutely no doubt that in the first decade of the 21st century, we know more about the universe than we have ever done at any time in our history. But we understand a lot less. Yes? Do I have an answer for life? Well, the answer, of course, is 42. I mean, we all know that. Um, have I covered... No, again, um, that, that was, again, a, a pragmatic decision. So, um, all right. yes, I can. have I covered the, the, the multi-world interpretation of quantum mechanics in the quantum story? The, the answer is no. I, I do cover it in an earlier book. Uh, so let me tell you first of all what that is because this this is this is great it doesn't get better than this so so here's, here's the thing you see so when this particle comes out of this system and I determine that it's spin up that's a, a bit of a problem of interpretation because it's saying that until that moment until that moment of measurement it could have been spin up or it's spin down but there is nothing absolutely nothing in the theory that will tell me whether it's spin-up or spin-down, before I make the measurement. The measurement collapses the wave function, which is the phrase that's used. All right, bit of a problem, never mind, got Einstein very exercised. An alternative interpretation was suggested in 1957, the year I was born, by um, a guy called Everett, and he suggested, in fact, well, maybe we're making a run for our own backs here, perhaps what happens is that when we collapse the wave function what we see is a spin-up electron but in another universe we have a spin-down electron it was referred to as schizophrenia with a vengeance so the idea is that every time we make a quantum measurement the universe splits into copies so there's a copy of this universe, in fact there are many copies of this universe where possibly a sentence I was going to give you my mind works slightly differently and I gave you a different sentence. Well, that's a universe that's travelling off in a different direction and we're all pretty much the same people in that universe. We're just experiencing a slightly different set of quantum phenomena. It's called the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. Now, the problem is you'd say, yeah, (laughs) you're kidding, right? No, no. Slight problem with quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is... Is, is fine and, and, and is kind of caged when you apply it at the atomic level. But we know, 13.7 billion years ago, that the universe began as a quantum fluctuation. It had quantum dimensions. So what did the wave function of the entire universe look like? And how was it possible for the universe's wave function to be collapsed if there's no one or nothing outside the universe to make a measurement on it? Those of you with a theological bent might want to invoke a deity at this point. (laughs) Physicists tend to want to avoid that kind of thing. So, one way of avoiding invoking God as the force that collapses the wave function of the universe is to say, well, in actual fact, there are many universes. It's called the multiverse theory. And those many universes come about quite simply because they have to be there, because otherwise we simply cannot explain how the wave function collapses.
0: Yes. Okay. There was a person in the book that suggested that maybe uh, the universe itself collapsed, in the way one of the persons will mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. like us who can collaborate mm-hmm. with this, So the universe itself mm-hmm. collapsed to a state in which there are uh, beings who can collaborate with. I've got, there's, there's, there's been an, in, an interpretation of, of this of this many worlds um, idea that I'm saying, I'm sorry, I haven't written about it in this book, but I've written about it in an early book, and I'll give it to you for what it's worth. Okay, so let's do an experiment. Let's have one of you volunteer to come up here and I'll set up an automatic weapon to blow your brains out. (laughs) But I'll set up this weapon in such a way that there's a 50-50 chance it will go off or not. Okay? Now, in the world we understand, you probably don't think that's a good bet. Because, by the way, if the gun doesn't go off, I'm going to repeat firing the thing. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: however if you're an advocate of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics you know you can't lose here because in the world where your brains are spread liberally over the wall and the window here there is another universe where you're completely unharmed and of course that universe by a process of selection is the universe where you get nothing other than a series of clicks from the automatic weapon Now, um, anyone who's willing to try that, I suggest you try and find a physicist who's willing to set up the experiment for you. I suspect you might struggle a little bit uh, because the fact is that irrespective of whether the multiverse theory is correct, you'd find that there are in some universes where the physicists have a lot of explaining to do. Okay? Yes? Yes, uh, so the, the question was, we had a question before about the distances over which quantum entanglement can be sustained, and I answered that by giving examples of experiments that have been done, conducted over kilometres and, and possibly even the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Um, does anything interfere with it? Yes. Entanglement, entangled photons, these are the most common particles that can be entangled, or are the easiest to entangle. Um, the, the minute you they get interfered with or you interact with them in another way, the entanglement is destroyed. So think of it like an interference. Think of it like a st- a sustaining an interference effect um, over huge distances. You, you cannot do that if the particles are not free to travel between the source and the target, wherever that is, without uh, interference. And of course, again, you may be familiar with the idea that this kind of quantum entanglement can, use, can be used, of course, to establish a form of cryptography. Um, but the cryptography rests on, in fact, the cryptography depends on interference. Because the minute I interfere with pairs of entangled photons to try and read a coded message is the minute the entanglement is destroyed and I know or you know that the code has been, uh, someone's tried to hack it. Yeah? Next question. I, 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 um, I, I don't know that we, we, we can answer that yet. I'm sure there are plenty of papers out there that, that speculate on the nature of this Higgs field. The Higgs field, by the way, is, is in my book, likely to be intri- intrinsically linked to the cosmological models that include what's known as a cosmological constant. So if there's a background energy field, it will contribute to the cosmological constant which is responsible for the expansion of the universe. It was Einstein's Fudge Factor. He introduced it in 1916 when he developed general relativity because he was uncomfortable with the idea that the universe could expand. So he put in a cosmological constant to try and hold it together and keep it static. He abandoned it. He said it was the biggest mistake in his life. All that happened was that in the 1970s, 1980s, the cosmological constant was reinserted into general relativity, because it's the only way to explain the dynamics of the universe that we can measure today. So yes, there's got to be a connection between the Higgs field and, and the universe. Um, I, I, I just don't know that we know uh, whether we're in a position to be clear and articulate about precisely what yet. By the way, I, I have to say that you, you might be interested to know that I'm, I'm up in Edinburgh next week, and I, I have managed to engineer an opportunity to sit with Peter Higgs and talk to him about what he thinks about what's going on at uh, CERN, um, and I'm hoping to get some uh, some real insights from him on precisely what this will mean in terms of the way we should interpret uh, this this kind of part of the standard model. Yes? What about Schrodinger's cat? Schrödinger's cat, yes. Well, um, Schrödinger and Einstein... Uh, didn't quite see eye-to-eye in the 1930s, but there was a series of letters that went back and forth between Berlin and Princeton uh, in 1935, where Schrodinger became persuaded to Einstein's point of view, and that led, uh, the content of those letters in fact, and again, that is described in the quantum story, led Schrodinger to develop his famous cat paradox, and the idea of the cat paradox is very simple. We're kind of okay, with this business of quantum probability and uncertainty when, it, when it's down there at atomic scales, because we don't experience those scales. However, what if we blow the scale up so that it's manifested at a macroscopic level? Schrodinger's idea was we have a seal box in which we place a small amount of radioactive material. As within a short time, there's a 50-50 chance that an atom of that radioactive material will disintegrate and trigger a Geiger counter. If the counter is triggered, a hammer is released, which smashes a file of prussic acid, which releases fumes of the acid and kills a cat, which happens to be stored in the box. Tragedy for any cat lovers out there. The idea was that what you've done in that process, you've amplified, effectively a quantum process, which is an atomic disintegration, all the way up to the life or death of a cat. And training this challenge, the paradox, uh, if if it really can be called that, is, is simply this. So, when is the measurement made? Is the measurement made the moment the Geiger counter triggers, or when the hammer is released, or when the prussic acid is released, or when the cat dies? Or, is the measurement the moment when I open the box to find out whether the cat's alive or dead? And... His point was that quantum mechanics doesn't have an answer to that question. It doesn't tell you where in the chain of events the collapse of the wave function is meant to occur. There's no clue. In fact, the collapse of the wave function is not an inherent part of quantum mechanics at all. We make it up, we postulate it, because it's the only way we can explain quantum probabilities. The argument was that we either believe that this cat is in some extraordinary superposition of deadness and aliveness, Or we say quantum mechanics is incomplete. It needs fixing. There's something missing. And until we get that something missing, we we don't really know what's going on at the atomic level. And that was Schrodinger's argument. Schrodinger and Einstein were lined up very much against Bohr. They were realists. They believed that theory should describe a a, a world that, that really exists independent of our ability to measure it or think about it or conceive of it. Bohr, Heisenberg, And Pauli and other members of the Copenhagen School that created the Copenhagen interpretation, if you like, took a more anti-realist view. They said, those are pointless metaphysical questions. We just can never know. It's pointless to ask the question whether the cat is alive or dead, because the truth is we won't know until we lift the box anyway. That was their contention. Good. Thank you very much.
0: Hello, and welcome to the August Cyber. I'm joined by Dr. Jim Baggett this month and he was here talking about his book The Quantum Story. Jim, thanks very much for coming along. Pleasure. Um, i just like to ask you a few questions about your interest in science, how you got into science writing and then a, a few other little questions that came to mind while I was listening to your talk. So, so can I ask, what was it that sort of got you interested in science in the first place? I think you mentioned you went to university in Manchester and did you? I studied chemistry, yes, absolutely. So uh, that's, that's a kind of very interesting question and I'm not entirely sure I've got a ready
1: answer for that. I, I think um, it must... I must be able to trace it back to a passion, wanting to understand the fundamentals of things. It's it's a bit of an old cliché, but I mean really to to understand what we are and what we're made of and where we come from and how we came to be and how the universe got shaped and evolved into what we see in a night sky. And and, and, I guess a a part of that um, evolved into a fascination with science at school when you come, in, in, in my days, you had to make a critical decision uh, just after having taken O-levels or GCSEs uh, in terms of your A-level choices, and I uh, ended up uh, with math, f- Maths, Physics and Chemistry. So, um, you know, it was uh, a decision
0: that was made then at, at kind of 16. So, so you pursued your career through science, you did your degree, and you did your DPhil at Oxford, I believe you said. Yeah. And then what sort of happened after that that sort of slowly led you into the writing? I know you mentioned that you sort of became to a, a new scientist uh, editor. Or something. That, that's right. I mean, I
1: I, I actually went through the early stages of uh, uh, an academic career. Um, I completed my DPhil in Oxford. Um, uh, I did the first year of a a postdoctoral period in Oxford as well, but then spent the second year at Stanford University in California, which was fantastic, before coming back and picking up, uh, actually in those days, what was known as a new blood lectureship in chemistry at the University of Reading. Uh, There hadn't been any real recruitments into universities for quite a number of years and as a government initiative, uh, the Science and Engineering Research Council as it was then um, uh, took the decision to actually award a number of universities around the country uh, funding to recruit um, young lecturers. lecturers. So I I came in as a New Blood lecturer. I I worked in Reading for five years. Um, I published lots of research papers. I I, I guess I, I had the beginnings of a promising academic career but as a result of various uh, personal things going in my life at the time, I took a decision to uh, step out. Uh, this was the, the height of the Thatcher boom uh, people were making money hand over fist, except of course for lowly academics who were paid a pittance. And, uh, I think very little has changed in that regard. I, I, I suspect that's the truth. Um, academics were expected to derive you know, great joy and satisfaction from the work that they did as opposed to the money they were paid. And, and, and for me, with a young family at that stage, it, it actually wasn't quite enough. So I, I quit academia and I joined um, um, a large multinational company. Um, I did various things, but I had this, this, this burning desire, I, I wasn't prepared, I didn't want to abandon science, uh, even though I'd chosen not to move from academic science into sort of commercial R&D, um, I made a pragmatic decision that I, I, I wanted to try and find a way to keep science in my life in some way, shape or form. And one of the ways of doing that was to say, OK, I feel I've got some competence and capability as a writer. Can I write popular science articles? Can I write articles for newspapers? Can I write books? And uh, I had uh, the the good fortune to um, have a discussion with uh, Features Editor of New Scientist. This is many years ago. This would have been in uh, the early 80s when, um, in fact, uh, she gave me the opportunity to write an article uh, based on a subject I knew something
0: about. Uh, through her guidance, uh, I was able to to learn the, the tricks of the trade, as it were. Do you start with the concept and then research around it, and then trim, prune back, or do you build up to the to the story that you were um, um, working uh, on at the time?
1: It, I think obviously different writers have different different ways of approaching. Um, uh, there's two aspects of this, to this. To this, in, in terms of the, the sort of structure of a book, um, uh, obviously it's important to have a kind of clear up clear idea up front. Uh, what it is you want to do Um, and you you craft a proposal that you take to uh, a publisher um, explaining effectively you know why this book is so important it needs to be published now what's different uh, compared to other books that might be out on the market it's important to take something of a sort of commercial mindset as well so it's important to have obviously if you've got a good idea it's important to have a good proposal think a little bit about how you're going to do that um, look at, at what makes you unique as a as a person to write that. And again, these are again parts of the sort of aspects of the craft or the tricks of the trade that I managed to pick up over the years, um, and uh, and have
0: uh, you know, made good use of. Yeah, it must be very rewarding once you've finally got that. You see that book on the shelf and people are sort of talking about it and reviewing it and things. Oh, well, is it quite nerve wracking? It,
1: no, it's 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 very well. Actually, I I, I do remember handing over the manuscript which was a a kind of printed manuscript um, in those days my first manuscript of the first book that I wrote and and I actually felt there was a part of me in it when I handed it over I, I, I almost kind of shivered uh, the thought that I was putting a part of my part of myself out there, for, for obviously for people to criticise or do whatever they they, they will with. Um, fortunately, that book turned out to be quite well received, so um, I was grateful for that. But yes, I mean, I, you, since you, since then, you, you kind of, as you publish more books, you, you kind of get used to that idea. But I can tell you, every time I go into Waterstones in Reading, the first thing I do is go along to the popular science section, pull out my books, and make sure they're displayed properly. <laughs> that
0: sounds like a wise idea, I think. Definitely. Um, OK, so I'd like to move on to a bit more about the, um, the some questions that we've got from the book and the talk itself. One of them is you talk about how these uh, quantum effects, the story of how they've been traced and how we're sort of trying to understand them at the moment, um, is there, is there or has there been a way that these effects have been deliberately exploited in some way in our sort of daily lives? Uh,
1: um, we're, we're surrounded by quantum effects. Um, I mean, uh, you go to a supermarket checkout and have your products scanned uh, as you go to the till. Um, this, this is in effect, is basically a quantum phenomenon. The laser light that's used in, uh, in, in those kinds of scanning machines are based on quantum principles. Um, that's one of, of any one of a number. I mean, the whole semiconductor industry is based on quantum principles. It wouldn't work without them. So um, uh, I make no bones about the fact that um, quantum theory, as a theory, um, has stood the test of time uh, in a very, very significant and important way. Um, we're surrounded with the fruits of the technology that comes from um, being able to use the knowledge we have of the quantum world. Um, I guess the point that I would make is that, as a theory, however, um, it still is very inscrutable. We still don't really understand the heart of it. We can use it. Um, but you know, the simple truth of it's a, a fact of life. You don't have to understand everything in order to be able to make use of it. Um,
0: another thing I mentioned is, I, I think I remember you said you mentioned it in your book, but you didn't mention it in the talk, which is um, we hear a lot about string theory. And how does that tie into the
1: quantum story? Well, the quantum story devotes a a fair number of. uh, The the quantum story is a a sort of history in 40 moments, and a good number of those moments are actually devoted to the development of something called the standard model of particle physics. Uh, Now, I've chosen to spend time on that because, in in effect, and it was particle physics that pushed uh, or drove the development of quantum theory into quantum field theory and into quantum electrodynamics and then into quantum chromodynamics and the electroweak theory that, that forms components uh, that is now known as the standard model. Um, and I obviously, you know, particle physics is thrilling, it's exciting, uh, it's also very expensive. Um, but it also is telling us some fundamental things about the composition of ourselves of our and our universe. So I was very interested to be able to write about the history of of the development of the Standard Model. But the Standard Model has has many flaws. Um, uh, The Standard Model as a theory is still based on the idea of of theoretical point particles, for example, and their associated waveforms. And string theory was really an attempt to get around some of the mathematical uh, inconsistencies that were created by the idea of point particles, by imagining particles as though they were s- very, very short um, sort of pieces of, 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 of string, or effectively fundamental strings of energy. Um, um, string theory got, got so far, it, it all got very exciting because it was discovered in some of the early versions of string theory that the theory predicted the existence of particles that could be identified as the force carriers of gravity. Um, and, 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 suddenly string theory became uh, not just a way of unifying forces and particles, it became a theory of everything, a theory that would explain the fundamental forces and particles that that make up material substance, that make up radiation, but also uh, that make up the entire cosmos, that make up space and time and, and the way that matter behaves within that. So, very exciting. Um, it suffered from certain um, uh, problems and uh, was 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 then supported or, or lifted off uh, by um, fusing um, aspects of a theory called supersymmetry with that supersymmetry is a grand unified theory which um, predicts a whole bunch of new supersymmetric particles in addition to the particles that are predicted by the standard model and that we know. Um, And so superstring theory became really the the grand theory of everything and of course it's a major source of activity amongst theoretical
0: physicists today. Excellent, well that's great. Thanks very much, Jim. It's been great having you with us and thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. All the best and we hope the book sells well. Thank you very much. Cheers. Take care. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to stop by our website at www.oxfordscidebar.com for our previous podcast, blog and upcoming events. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and find us on Facebook by searching for British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch. Thanks very much.